you're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. This episode is about identifying plants using scientific names. And our guest is Stuart Williams, who's a friend of mine on Twitter that posts some awesome exotic and native plants. He's also a landscape architect and a horticulturist. Welcome to the show, Stuart. G'day, Daniel. How are you? Yeah, not too shabby. Thank you very much. So what is the natural classification system and what's so good about it? Well, I'll start by saying that the classification of plants is tricky as taxonomy is constantly evolving. There's always new scientific research and methods that challenge previous assumptions. There's estimated to be over 8 million organisms on Earth, so we need some sort of classification system to work out what's what. In biology, taxonomy is a way of grouping organisms with shared characteristics. Classification of plants goes back to ancient times. The current system of taxonomy is largely based on work by Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, published in 1735. Uh, since then, taxonomy has progressed with new scientific methods. These enable classification based on evolutionary relationships between organisms and descent from a common ancestor. I'll give you a couple of examples of how grouping related plants is useful for horticulture. The first example is um, the fungal plant pathogen myrtle rust is a relatively new disease in Australia, and it's a serious threat to native plants. It infects plants in the myrtle family myrtaceae which is useful to understand in terms of which plants are potentially at risk. More than 40 plant genera in this family have been affected by this disease, including species of eucalyptus, calistamin, and syzygium, which are the, the lily pillies. That's one example. A second example is understanding plant cultivation requirements. In the family Proteaceae, there's 27 genera, which have proteoid roots, which form clusters of uh, closely spaced lateral rootlets, which are an adaption for low-nutrient soils. If we cultivate species in this family, we know that they are getting or generally need slow-release, low-phosphorus fertiliser and also need uh, minimal root disturbance. The classification of plants is very much on a uh, related organisms basis is very useful in cultivation requirements for plants. So when we're talking about plant scientific names, we're really talking about evolutionary lineages, as you said. Yes, yes, we are. That's uh, where we are or where taxonomists are going. Traditional taxonomy was based uh, more on common characteristics, but uh, because there's been new research done on DNA, etc., molecular level, they're looking at uh, more of a um, common ancestor approach. So that's <laughs> like plants themselves taxonomy has evolved. Now, if we look at uh, the different layers of classification, in biological classification, taxonomic rank is the level of a group of organisms ordered in a hierarchy. There are differing versions of this hierarchy. You need to be aware that different sources use different hierarchies. I'll go through one here that's used by the website iNaturalist, as this resource can readily be used to help identify plants, and I'll explain that later. Firstly, at the top of this hierarchy is kingdom. Examples of kingdoms are animals, fungi and lichen, kelp diatoms and allies, then there's a few others, and then you have plants, which also known as plantae. In 2016, there are estimated to be 
374,000 species of plants. So there's a lot of plants, so you really need a classification system to sort out what's what. The next level down is phylum, and this level includes hornworts, mosses, and then there's this whole stack of algaes. There's carified algae, green algae, glucophyte algae, and red algae. And then in another group, there's vascular plants, also known as tracheophyta. In 2016, the rest are made it to be about 308,000 species of vascular plants. These have vascular tissues that distribute water and nutrients within the plant. And uh, vascular plants are themselves divided into a number of classes. And when you get down to this level, there'll be things that are a little bit more recognisable as long as some that aren't. First up are the cycads. We've got native cycads in Australia and they're also sometimes used in... Uh, cultivation often seen in botanic gardens next is the ginkgos these are extinct except for one very special species ginkgo biloba the maiden hair tree from china which we also come across in cultivation then there's the netophytes don't know much about those then there's the <laughs> lycopods <laughs> and the lycopods include club mosses we've got those in australia so that's relevant and then we've got uh, conifers, including pines, cypresses, and firs. And then we've got the ferns. So these are important groups to um, classify your plants into. And also within vascular plants, we've got a very important group, which is the angiosperms or flowering plants, which a lot of us deal with in horticulture. In 2016, they're estimated to be about 295,000 species of flowering plants. So flowering plants are the vast majority of the vascular plants. And again, you're dealing with very big numbers, so uh, that's why classification is so important. Traditionally, flowering plants divide into two subgroups that are useful for identification. The first is the monocots. These are the grasses and grass-like flowering plants. And the other is the dicots. And now we go down to the next level, which is order. And then below that is the level known as family, families of plants. Now, an example of a family is Proteaceae, which predominantly includes plants from the Southern Hemisphere. Plant genera from this family include Protea, known in South Africa as sugar bushes, where they're from and also Banksias and Grevilleas, which are mostly from Australia. The next level down is genus and then species, both of which are used in binomial nomenclature. Cool. What is meant by binomial nomenclature? It's a two-term naming system used to name all species of living things, all the species in those, uh, all the kingdoms that we mentioned at the start. Every species name is comprised of the genus name, which has the initial letter in uppercase, followed by a specific epithet, which is written in all lowercase. An example of this is the swamp gum, which has the botanical name Eucalyptus ovata, so the eucalyptus with a capital E and the ovata with a small o. Eucalyptus is the genus, the group of plants that it belongs to, commonly known as gum trees, which comprises more than 700 species. Ovata is the specific epithet, which refers to the oval shape of the leaves of this particular species. And what's the abbreviation that sometimes you see at the end of a botanical name? Well, that's called an author citation. 
and that's the method of citing the bot- botanist or botanists who publish the botanical name. So as an example, you have the yellow gum, that's eucalyptus lococcyllin, and published as eucalyptus lococcyllin mule, where M-U-E-L-L full stop is added to the end of the botanical name. It's a standard abbreviation for Ferdinand von Mueller, who was the Victorian government botanist between 1853 and 1896. Mueller formally described the species and published it in 1855. That's very interesting. So why do some plants sort of get that abbreviation of the name and some don't? All plants get the abbreviation. It's just that it's you often see it without the abbreviation. Oh. But uh, in scientific papers and uh, a lot of scientific literature, the author citation is given so that the name can be attributed to a specific author. It's a method of citation. But uh, you're right, you often don't see it in, say, um, books on on plants, you know, for gardens or whatever. But if you get into um, botany sites and scientific literature relating to plants, you'll often see it as a way of properly citing the name. All species do have that um, author citation after after the name. Okay, so probably a lot of the books that I've been reading just are probably at a lower level of depth because I'm probably working on a horticultural level as opposed to a taxonomical level or maybe even a botanical level. It's not needed most times. Most time you don't don't deal with it, but uh, it's just uh, something to be aware of that if you're reading scientific papers, that's what that name relates to and it's a proper citation in that field. But it's something you don't have to worry about in day-to-day horticulture. And what about SP dot and SPP dot? What do they mean? The sort of more accepted version for subspecies is um, SUB, SP dot, that subspecies. Well, what did I say? Well, there's two actually. I think you had SSP dot, that's a I subspecies. I, right. And then, I can't remember if I said then, SSP or SPP. <laughs> and uh, see, it's very confusing because there's, there's both of them. Uh, terms the SPP is a shorthand for species. It's a plural, plural. We've got multiple species, so SPP is multiple species, whereas subspecies is SSP dot. But because there's that confusion, this is actually a good point. Because that's confusion, the current um, format, more accepted format for subspecies, is to spell out SUBSP dot. That does make a lot more sense to write it out that way, seeing as they're so similar. Yeah, yeah. It causes a lot of confusion, so the tendency is to write it out a little bit more fully. And so if I if I know I've got a eucalyptus tree, but I'm not sure what species it is, I might just say eucalyptus sp dot because I'm unsure. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah, we're unsure of the species, yeah. That single sp dot is for a, a singular species. And you're saying you've got one species of eucalyptus, you're not sure which one it is, so you just put eucalyptus sp dot. I love that one. That's a good one I like to use all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I use that quite often myself. Eucalyptus <laughs> are very difficult to identify. So how do taxonomists come up with the names for plants? Well, there are many different methods that taxonomists use for this. Um, firstly, they use names that come from Latin and classical Greek words to describe plants. For example, Eucalyptus that we're just talking about is derived from the classical Greek words EU, U meaning well, and Calypto meaning covered. And that refers to the operculum or bud cap that covers the flower bud. So it's saying that the flower bud, before it opens into the flower with the stamens, it's got the bud, 
bud cap on top and so, and so that's indicating it's well covered by this cap enclosed by it. So that's relating back to the um, classical Greek words. There's other methods used though for naming. There's names of people. So for example, Banks here is named after Joseph Banks, who with Daniel Slander collected the first scientific specimens from Botany Bay in 1770. Another way of naming plants is names after names of places. An example of that is uh, Eucalyptus kybeanensis, and that was named because specimens of those were um, originally collected at Kybean in New South Wales. And then there's other sources of names, including anagrams, puns, and even jokes, which has been used as sources for names. So an example of a name based on an anagram there's a genus from South Africa called Podrania, and that's actually an anagram of the closely related Australian genus uh, Pandaria. And then there's even joke names. There's a species, there's a new species of rhinoceros beetle, which was given the name Cyclocephala, not another one. A very bad joke. <laughs> not another one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in one word or in multiple words? That's that's in one word. One word. Uh, yeah, not another one. <laughs> so uh, you can see it goes from the very formal sort of uh, classical Greek and Latin to uh, just made up stuff. So <laughs> there's the whole gamut there. And what languages are used in scientific names? Well, although Latin grammatical forms are used, names can be based on other words from other lang- on words, I should say, from other languages. Mostly they're derived from Latin and Greek classical words. However, and Here's a couple of examples for of epithets in species names. So a species name example, Saxicola, that's derived from the Latin word meaning or words meaning rock dwelling. And an example of that is thryptamine Saxicola, which is the rock thryptamine, which is often found on granite outcrops in Western Australia. The second one is Tetraptera, which is derived from the classical Greek words for four-winged and that name is used on Eucalyptus tetraptera, which is known as the four-winged melly in um, the southwest of Western Australia. Cool. So that can be – it's really just um, pretty loose then. It's not necessarily ironclad as long as you stick to the other binomial rules. Yeah, there, there are there are um, strict grammatical rules, but you can derive your um, the, the base words from anywhere. And people name them after, even after there's things named after Steve Irwin, Steve Irwin, I type type epithets. So, um, yeah, th- the words can come from anywhere, but the gram- grammatical form is um, to a particular formula. And that that gets on to the next part that um, there are grammatical rules, um, and these are really quite complex. They're set out in the International Code of Nomenclature for Algae, Fungi and Plants, and that code is based on decisions of the nomenclature, I always find problems pronouncing that word, section <laughs> of the Botanical <laughs> Congress, IBC, which is held every six years. And the current version of that code is referred to as the Shenzhen Code, as the last Congress was held in Shenzhen in China in 2018. And that code is on the internet, but uh, if you're not involved in naming plants, then you don't have to worry too much about that. 
And we've talked a little bit about uh, the word epithet that's sort of been thrown around a little bit. Can you describe what that word means in a little bit of detail for us? It's basically the second word of the uh, botanical name. So the first one, uh, say um, eucalyptus, that's the genus name. And then if it's eucalyptus ovata, ovata is the specific epithet, which is just the specific name given to that species. Um, so ovata is the specific epithet and eucalyptus is the genus and you put the, the two together to give the, give you the uh, binomial name. So what's the difference between a species and a subspecies? The subspecies is just the next level down. A subspecies is a group within a species which is branched off. It's got slightly different characteristics which are mostly due to geographic isolation. So they're related, but then you might have one that's over the other side of a mountain that's developed a little bit separately. Not separately enough to be a separate species, but just a little bit different. And how about a variety? Variety is the next step down. The subspecies, the one that you need to be mostly aware of formally, variety is the next step down, so it's finer detail. And then you've even got a, a rank below that, form which is even finer detail again. You don't have to get too right about those other than just be aware that they exist as, uh, as, as names. But uh, in terms of formal publication of botanical names, you're mostly concerned with down to species and subspecies level and uh, the rest is, is finer detail. And then we have another thing called the cultivar. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and why it's different from a variety? Right. Now we're getting into uh, horticulture, so um, we're leaving the the formal botany, but we have um, varieties that are developed uh, for horticulture and agriculture, etc. So a cultivar is a cultivated plant variety selected for desirable characteristics. So an example of that is the Hess avocado, which you find in your local supermarket. Its full name is uh, Persea americana, Hass. With the cultivar, na- ha- cultivar name Hass, written with a capital H and enclo- enclosed in single quotes. So, single quote, capital H, A double S, and then end with a single quote. And that particular cultivar was originally a seedling grown by Rudolf Hass in California in 1926. And all avocado trees with this name are genetic clones of this original tree grafted onto a rootstock. So the idea behind cultivars is that they're consistent, completely genetic clones in general, that they're consistent in the propagation. Another example is um, Grevillea Robin Gordon, which is a shrub that's familiar to many gardens in Australia, and that originated as a seedling in the garden of David Gordon in Queensland, who named it after his daughter. And he saw that it had prolific and sustained flowering and it's a hybrid of Grevillea banksi from Eastern Australia and Grevillea bipinnatifida from uh, Western Australia. And that was commercially released in 1969. And the plants for that are propagated by cuttings so that they're genetically identical to the original plant. So if you go to a plant nursery or Bunnings or wherever and, and buy a Grevillea Robin Gordon, it's going to be exactly the same plant with exactly the same characteristics as what David Gordon had in his garden in Queensland in 1969. So the idea of a cultivar is control over the exact type of plant 
because um, if you've got species, say species grown from seed, say eucalypts, you can get a lot of variation in seedlings with the height of the tree, the character, some might develop with a crooked trunk, some might be taller and straighter. There's quite a bit of uh, genetic diversity, but most cultivars are clones and they're identical. So the idea is to produce a plant and market it and know exactly what you're getting. And I guess when we say clone or, you know, a seedling, a seedling comes from two parents. So you've got the pollen and the um, egg, whereas when you've got a clone, that might just be, it's not as scary as it sounds. I mean, it's not done in a lab, is it? No, it can be done in a lab, but uh, generally not. You can just nip a bit off your um, shrub and stick a cutting in a pot. And uh, if that gets roots, that'll be a clone of uh, the other plant that you took the cutting off. So it can be as simple as that, or um, it could be done in the laboratory with tissue culture, etc. Yeah, no, it's not not scary at all. It's it's just a, a way of saying that the plant is gen- genetically identical. So what are trade designations and selling names? Well, they're um, plant names that are trademarked or they may be names used for plants that are registered for plant breeders' rights by an authority such as IP Australia. They're used because cultivar names are in the public domain. An example of this is one in Australia is a Gorilla Cherry Cluster. Uh, in this case, it also has the obscure cultivar name of TWDO1 primarily because they want to um, market this and get the uh, the royalties from uh, from the plant known as Gorilla Cherry Cluster. And then another example is the Rose Variety Iceberg. This is a selling name for the cultivar called Corbin. Now, that's not something you'll find in a nursery. That's just a, a name. Uh, so you've got the reference to what it is, but, but we all know about Iceberg Roses and uh, that's the name you'll see in the nursery, but that's actually a a trade name rather than the cultivar name. And then in marketing, they might use selling names in different regions of the world. So, for instance, with the iceberg rose in other parts of the world, it might be marketed, it's marketed under these other names, uh, Fade Neige and, uh, and another one, uh, Sneewitchen. How do we go about correctly identifying a plant that we find out in the field? Do you recommend a plant identification app or maybe even a plant key or do you use both? Yes, I, I, I do use both. I, I use everything that's available. When we look at a plant, we need to look at its various physical characteristics such as flowers, stems, leaves and fruits. This requires some knowledge of botany and familiarisation with botanical terms. For Australian plants and plants naturalised in Australia, I tend to use the herbarium websites for the relevant states. So I'm in Victoria, so uh, for Victorian plants, I'll use the um, Vic Flora. That's a website hosted by the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria, and it gives a description of each species together with photos and herbarium specimen specimen images. And, uh, And that has a key to species found in Victoria, and keys are the gold standard for plant identification, but they do require a knowledge of botany and you need to look at minute detail, which might require using a hand lens to really see some quite detailed uh, small features. And uh, you, you also need to get measurements of the plants and that would require either measurement of the plants in the field, for instance, if you're in a national park, because you can't go about um, picking things from national parks, or if you're on private land, 
and you're working for someone, you might bring back uh, specimens to your home or office as long as they're not uh, protective native flora. A tool I'm increasingly used to help with plant identification is the uh, the website and app iNaturalist, and that's an online database of observations of biodiversity, and it's got one million registered users around the world, including scientists and citizen scientists, and that mostly deals with wild-growing plants and includes native and naturalised exotic plants, but also includes, to a lesser extent, some commonly cultivated plants. Plant observations are in the form of photos and uh, with a georeference that can be uploaded to the site and then suggestions for the ID are given by the app. And then other members of the community can come in and suggest an ID or make a comment. So you've got both the uh, sort of, and I don't quite know how to do it, but it's kind of like machine learning and then <laughs> and also based on, based on uh, geographic location, you know, the likelihood of something being in an area. But uh, if that fails, and it can, certainly can fail, then you've also got uh, opportunities for um, other people on that side who can suggest IDs for you, and uh, and you can and can put comments uh, within the site. So it sort of works on multiple levels. So I find that quite useful for um, actually just browsing and looking at what species are commonly found in a certain area. For example, if you come across what looks like a member of the Proteaceae family in the Grampians National Park in Victoria, you can enter the family name, Proteaceae, and then the um, location, Grampians National Park, and then it'll come up with all the observations of Proteaceae within that park. And uh, you can look through all the photos and you can find a match, you know, just visually looking for all the photos that might match your particular plant if you suspect it's in that Protea family. Awesome. And can you describe a little bit about how a plant key works for our listeners? A plant key... It's a sequence of sort of questions and answers that you go through and it goes through the various uh, ranks of plants and then when you get down to uh, genus level, it gives you um, within the genus uh, a list of species and then you go through one by one and it's kind of either yes or no and if it's yes, you go to the next one and and then you go on to the next one. So it's, it's a sequential way of uh, coming up with a plant ID, but you do have to have botanical knowledge and you do have to have um, sometimes very fine detail. So it can, can be pretty tricky. Some of it's more straightforward. Some of it's really, really um, hard to discern. And sometimes you find some of the keys may not be written as clearly as you might like. So it's, it's a bit tricky sometimes, but that is the gold standard. And that's what botanists work with uh, keys to actually come up with a, a definite determination of plant ID. But it's um, as you sort of uh, develop your knowledge of plants you, and get an, an eye for what family a plant might be in, you can sort of develop a, uh, a visual sense of what uh, family a plant's in and perhaps what genus and and go that way. But yeah, the the uh, the key is the uh, is the gives you a definitive answer. And there are some apps out there where you just take a photo. I found that those apps can be a bit hit and miss. I think they're probably a pretty good place to start, but I probably wouldn't trust them a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm I'm a bit wary of them. I mean, they're getting better all the time, and and they've got to be the photos got to be taken on the right angle and the right light, mm. and be in the yeah. database. I also mm. find it's. I mean, 
I've tried a few of them and I, I, I sort of um, give up after the first really bad answer that they give. I just go, oh, this is not going to be any good. But I think they have a role, and you're right. As as a beginner, there's um, there's very apps, and I can't remember lots of them off the top of my head. Yeah, there's very identification app or something, something, something like that. I'll have a link in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah, there's quite a um, there's quite a range of them, but um, I find for myself they're not developed far enough for my use, and I find that they're not developed well for Australian plants. Something to look out for in the future, uh, I think. But but certainly for beginners, yeah, yeah, give it a give it a go. But you've got to know the thing is if it comes up with the wrong answer, how are you going to know it's the wrong answer? Yeah. And it will come up with the wrong answer. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had some doozies. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you have a toolbox of different ways of identifying plants and you've got to use all of the tools. You've got to use websites, you've got to use um, books. You go through photos on social media other people have put up and uh, other photos on Google Images. You use the whole lot and use those state herbaria website from the various states if you're in Australia. And iNaturalist as well. And iNaturalist as well. So use everything. There isn't one one solution that'll that'll do it all. You've got to be prepared, if it's a really difficult ID, to uh, look at multiple sources. But uh, the main message really is just to look at these multiple sources and uh, and, and you really have to um, just develop a visual sense over time. It is difficult when you're starting out, but you, you get it over time. So in your opinion, who do you think would benefit from starting the journey of learning plant scientific names? Is that for everybody or maybe just a few people? Well, it's for everyone who deals with plants in their everyday lives, which is a lot of people. And, you know, that can be home gardeners or professionals. Um, and they're all going to benefit from having some knowledge of plant scientific names. Uh, in fact, um, most people probably already recognise many names. For instance, Camellia, Magnolia, Rhododendron and, and Aloe Vera. So people got a starting base that they'll probably know a lot of names to start with. So it's uh, not as... Uh, difficult as you may think and it's not as foreign to um people as they may think certainly there's some uh clanger names uh, out there in the scientific world but um um, a lot of them are pretty straightforward and some of those common names as well can be two different plants or even more different plants might actually have the same common name so we might run into problems unless we do learn those scientific names yeah, that's very much the case. For instance, there's um, about 20 species in Australia of eucalypts, which are known as red gums. So <laughs> if I just say red gum, well, in Melbourne, I'll probably think uh, eucalyptus camulodensis, um, river red gum. But around Australia, um, there's 20 different species known in local areas as red gums. And that's where it gets tricky. As soon as you get out of your local area, there's common names are going to be applied for different plants. And you go to a different state, you've got Eucalyptus sovata before, we're talking about before, which in Victoria is the swamp gum. And in Tasmania, that's the black gum. And then you've got other ones like Eucalyptus lococcolon, um, which is yellow gum in Victoria. And it's, no, I forget which way around that is. I think it's, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, blue gum in uh, South Australia. So common names are very 
well, the, the big problem is the ambiguity. You just can't be sure of what you're getting. And uh, if you're, you know, ordering a uh, a dozen uh, red gums from a nursery, you really want to give them that uh, scientific name to make sure you're getting exactly mm. the right red gums <laughs> that you have in mind. Uh, so it, it's very important for people working day to day with plants and, um, you know, buying plants at nurseries and uh, and gardeners, etc. you know, don't have to be a total expert, but just having a knowledge of um, the basic names of plants um, that you're dealing with is certainly useful. And the other thing is, if you're using scientific names, you've always got genus and species name included in it. And having the genus name just makes you more aware of the grouping that a plant is in, you know, Eucalyptus ovata, and then you're aware that with Eucalyptus ovata, it's in the genus Eucalyptus, and and that's a genus of 700 species. If you go to California, they say, oh, we hate Eucalyptus, you know, they're terrible trees, and and then uh, you realise they're talking about the blue gums, Eucalyptus globulus, which they've had it there for years, and that's just one species of 700 species. That's where you sort of need to be careful with your scientific names to use the uh, the complete binomial eucalyptus globulus, not just eucalypts, to represent a particular species. It stops misunderstandings, which is always a good thing because you get yourself into trouble with misunderstandings. So what are some of your personal favourite Aussie families in general? Well, I'd have to say my personal favourite plant family is the Proteaceae, but that's there's lots of species in Australia. It's not just Australian, though. It's mostly a Southern Hemisphere plant fa- family, and uh, that's got um, iconic species like the New South Wales Roritar, Tilopia speciosissima, and then there's uh, the Banksias and Grevilleas, and those two genera, they spill out to some of our neighbouring countries such as Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, and New Caledonia. And uh, within that, I think, uh, Grevilleas would be my favourite genus and there's more than 360 species of those and uh, only six of those species are outside Australia um, so the, the vast majority are found in, within Australia and I think one of the factors that got me interested in, in uh, that genus was bushwalking and that in my state Victoria they're associated with scenic areas and, and some of our higher peaks there's Grevillea Victoria at um, Mount Buffalo, uh, Grevillea microstegia at Mount Castle in, in the Grampians, and there's Grevillea monslacana at uh, Lake Mountain. In Victoria, it seems like every mountain's got its own Grevillea. So uh, <laughs> I'm not so interested in climbing the, the mountains as finding the Grevilleas uh, near the top of them. Oh, no. so. <laughs> <laughs> and also they can range from ground covers, just prostrate plants low to the ground or they can range right up to the silky oak which is a full-on mm. uh, large tree i thought that so was a conifer the conifer first time genus. i saw that one. Oh, right until yes, it flowered. I can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> they start off with a bit of a conical shape but then when they get old they get uh, a bit scraggly in their shape yeah that, the beautiful family yeah I, I definitely agree with that that's a great choice yeah um and great diversity within australia and uh Travelling around uh, Western Australia last year and the year before, um, great diversity of species in the southwest there, which are um, of great interest to people interested in plants. 
Is there something else that you'd like our listeners to know about just before we wrap the episode up? I think um, just to say that classification and naming of plants is constantly being revised. You just need to be aware of that. It's a bit of a pain, but it's a, it's always a work in progress, so things change over time. So you've also got to know that if you've got your textbook on various plants, you know, it's likely to be out of date already. So it's a good idea to check botanical names against databases if you want to make sure that you're using the correct botanical names. There's the Australian Plant Index, known as APNI, A-P-N-I, uh, hosted by the Australian National Botanic Garden in Canberra. Um, and that's an online database of all published names of Australian vascular plants that is linked to the Australian Plant Census. And uh, that's always a good resource to check if names are correct and up to date. And then in terms of a global plant database, there's quite a few to choose from, but I tend to mostly like, uh, mostly use uh, a website called GRIN, Green Global. And that's an online database hosted by the United States Department of Agriculture. And that gives uh, your scientific names, common names, distribution and economic use of plants. Uh, so uh, that's useful if you're um, looking at uh, plants. Well, it has Australian plants as well, but looking at plant species uh, from all parts of the world. Thanks so much for coming on, Stuart. That was awesome. And I hope our listeners have learned a lot more about plant scientific names, what they're used for, and how to actually end up using them. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. I hope you've learned a lot about using plant scientific names for identification. This is quite a dense subject, so if you're new to plant identification, I definitely do recommend having another listen to this episode in a couple of weeks. In the show notes, you'll also see some links to some of the material that I've written, including one article on plant scientific names and another one on using flowers and leaves to make an identification. I've also got a blog series on some of the most common 25 families, subfamilies and genera that I've seen in Aussie gardens. There will also be a few other links to some of the subjects that we've talked about, such as plant identification apps and iNaturalist, as well as the Vic Flora Plant Key, 